Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May we purify an ocean of worlds. May we free an ocean of beings. May we see an ocean of dharma. May we realize an ocean of wisdom. May we purify an ocean of activities. May we fulfill an ocean of aspirations. May we make offerings to an ocean of Buddhas. May we practice without discouragement for an ocean of eons. This is called Thanks by W.S. Merwin. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water, thanking it, standing by the windows, looking out in our directions, back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks, we are saying thank you in the faces of the officials and the rich and of all who will never change, we go on saying thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, taking our feelings, we are saying thank you. With the forest falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us, we're saying thank you. Faster and faster, with nobody listening, we are saying thank you. Thank you, we are saying and waving, dark, though it is. W.S. Merwin died in 2019 after winning pretty much every prize that a poet could win in the United States. And he studied with Robert Aiken Roshi in the Diamond Sangha in Hawaii. So he was a Zen student. 
And like Jane Hirschfield, who's also a Zen student, he didn't talk about it much. He didn't really like to. But it's really in his every word, I think, that particular view of the world, that level of attention. Mary Oliver, whom Buddhists love to quote, was not actually formally a Buddhist, but she said very simply and very directly in one of her poems, pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And she called this instructions for living a life. So when we get caught in anger, in righteousness, in judgment, when we feel sure that we know what needs to happen, to whom and how, we can remember again to pay attention and be astonished, be struck, be humbled by how much we don't understand after all this time. I was struck, Sankai, by your Dharma glimpse, by how simple of an insight it is. You know, when you said, I'm sick and I have done nothing about it, because I know from what you've told me how bad you have been feeling for quite some time. And I think I'm probably, I'm most likely not alone when I say that I feel that. I think, I think those of us who are here and who listen to you and who, you know, spend time with you feel it. And it hurts to have you feel sick. And you have said to me, you know, I just wonder how much of it is what I make of it, right? What I create. And the reason I'm bringing it up and the reason I'm speaking to it when I said I would let the Dharma glimpses stand is because I was struck. You know, sometimes what we see really is so simple. What we see is what has been there all along, and we couldn't see it just a moment before. It really is like that. A moment before, we couldn't see it. For years, we couldn't see it. And something happens, and now it's there. And how amazing that is, how incredible that is. I hope we don't miss that. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And I think I don't need to tell you right, that what is happening right now in the world is not new. But the names are different, the places are closer, they're farther away, but it's not anything that hasn't happened before which doesn't mean we shouldn't care, but it does mean that we should remember what to focus on, 
Now, what do we give our attention to, our energy, so that it matters most? I mean, I would say it's not in the news that blames and divides. It's not in the hundreds, thousands, probably millions of comments on posts and articles that slander, you know, that vilify. It's not in gossip, it's not in hearsay, in exaggeration, certainly not in misinformation, in rage and distraction. And it's not in pretending nothing's happening, but it's not in obsessing about it. A friend said to me recently, who's who's a Dharma teacher, and they said, you know, I can't can't, uh, look away from CNN. And I remember thinking, why? (laughs) Why do that to yourself? Our minds can process 11 million bytes of information per second. 11 million. Our conscious mind can only sort through 40. 40. So what will we choose to focus on? Merwin wrote Thanks in 1987, and the first version was more, more. In a country up to its chin in shame, living in the stench that it has chosen, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and the fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying, thank you, thank you. And then he changed it, he rewrote it a little bit and published it the following year. And one person writing about it thought that the poem was ironic. And somebody else thought that Merwin was mocking gratitude, empty gratitude, right? The show of being grateful without a substance. And I, I just, I don't think so. I don't think so. I took him at face value. I took him at his word. I think he's saying, because of that, despite of this, we say thank you. Remembering wars and after funerals with nobody listening, we're saying thank you. We're saying thank you, dark though it is, because dark is not all there is. And that should be said loud and clear. It should be said simply and often, dark is not all there is, not by a long shot. Question. Yes. Go ahead, Sunke. I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you want to 
Do you want to be recording this? I am. You are. Yes, thank you. I paused it and started it again. Somebody interviewing Mary Oliver um, asked the question, how is your poetry different? And she thought for a while, and she very seldom gave interviews because she said she wanted her poetry to speak for itself. And she thought for a while and she said, you know, so much poetry nowadays is sardonic. It's full of sarcasm. And she said, mine is not like that. And she said, I guess I'm interested in hope. So we say thank you for what we have and for what we are. Because what we have is always, always so much more than what we've lost. Remember the question I asked during the threaded talk we did at the Zazankai? Those of you who were there, I said, how do you find happiness within pain? And a couple of you said to me recently, I'm still thinking about it. Good. How do you find happiness within pain? How do you find peace in the middle of war? inner and outer? How do you find unity in division, love where there is so much hate and violence and greed? And I would not ask if it wasn't possible, but I'm not interested in hypotheticals, and I definitely wouldn't waste your time with them. I'm interested in being free from pain from the pool of darkness. That's what I want for you, for me, for everyone. And so how do we do it? How do we find happiness in pain? I don't mean pleasure. I don't mean enjoyment. I mean happiness, gratitude in darkness. How do we, in the midst of wars and court trials and dying forests and dying children, how do we say thank you, not for the horror, but for the opportunity to change it, for the opportunity to see something that changes your life, and by extension, the life of those around you? Like, how do we say thank you for the opportunity to see who we are and to figure out how to best live? Which is, of course, what we are doing here. E.B. White, right, who wrote Charlotte's Web, he said, you know, I rise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it difficult to plan the day. I actually thought of Marguerite when I read that. <laughs> and I would argue that the two are not different. 
you don't have to give up your enjoyment of the world. And it is, it's not even about improvement. I, I wouldn't speak of it about in, in terms of improvement, but in helping the world be everything that it can be, everything that it is. No being ever falls short of its own completeness. It never fails to cover the ground upon which it stands. Master Dogen. And sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Galway Kino, another poet. And both are true. Both are true, right in this moment. And sometimes we know, sometimes we have glimpses or we just, we have moments where we feel our own and the world's completeness. Because we've been sitting long, we've been quiet enough or still enough, and we just feel it, we know it. Sometimes we have to remember, sometimes we have to be reminded. Sometimes we have to work to feel it, because it is not the obvious thing. So we practice, because it's not easy to say thank you when your partner has left, or when you've lost your job, or when people you know and, or don't know die, when someone hurts you. But every day, something changes. Someone leaves, something dies, something happens we did not want. And still, we can say thank you. Among all the many things that happen that we can't choose, we can choose this. We can choose this. And how incredibly powerful that is. The Buddha said reverence, humility, contentment, and gratitude, and the timely hearing of the Dharma, the teaching of the Buddha, this is the highest blessing. You know, and there's a reason I've been talking about this for some time now, about not harming when harmed, not blaming, not using our much needed energy on what will not change in the long run. Certainly to remind me and to remind all of us that we do need reverence and humility and contentment and gratitude to meet our lives. And humor. And humor, you know, I was reading about a a man in Serbia who's basically dedicated his life to training revolutionaries. That's what he does for a living. How to topple a dictator. And he's done this in, in, in um, many different countries. And one of the things that they use is uh, humor as a tool to dispel fear. Because, you know, if, you're, if your country is run by a dictator, and if opposing them 
will get you killed or disappeared, you're not going to want to act or to speak up. And so in Chile in the 80s, miners were protesting the dictatorship and they convinced citizens to do something that was not illegal, so they couldn't really be apprehended, but that was, became highly disruptive. And it's so simple, it's just to drive slowly. And so people got in their cars and, and taxi drivers got in their cabs and bus drivers got in their buses and everybody just started crawling down the street. And then pedestrians started walking slow motion on the sidewalk. I mean, imagine that in a big city like Santiago, for example. <laughs> oh my God, I would love to see that in Mexico City. And in Poland, people took their um, televisions and put them on wheelbarrows and wheeled them through the streets in protest of the fake news that the government was dishing out. And this was something they could do. Oh, another thing they did in Chile was just flip the light switches on and off, on and off, on and off, on and off constantly. Because people saw other people doing it and they thought, oh, okay, I can do this and they stepped in. This wasn't the only thing, but government after government was toppled, in fact. My friend I shared with you stands in the town square and recites a poem to the earth every day, twice a day, I think she does it. I mean, that is not, is not humorous, but it's also very simple. And it's so effective that people are shaken by it, right? People are, are trying to stop her for doing something that doesn't bother anyone, or does it? And I think we need all of this. We need, certainly, we need gratitude and creativity and humor to address our lives, both globally and individually. Right? We, we need to be able to, to laugh when we don't quite make it. I said this, you know, some, some time ago, and when I first started giving talks, I don't know, 15 years ago, you know, I realized how powerful humor is, right, to, to convey a message. So it also, you know, it gets people relaxed, it, it creates a sense of, of camaraderie, and I thought, you know, that's really useful. And then my next thought was like, oh my God, but I'm not funny at all. And so I bought a book, <laughs> several books actually. I did what I always do when I don't know how to do something. You know, I just, I studied and I practiced. And I made a fool of myself many, many times trying to tell a funny story that fell flat. But one thing that did come out of it, I mean, I'm actually not even that good at it this many years later, but one thing that did come out of it is my, was my own ability to laugh. To, I don't even think about it necessarily as humor always. I think about it as lightness. At the very least, to shrug off my mistakes to kind of, you know, cock an eyebrow at the one who thinks that she knows how things are. 
Which reminds me, um, several of you also brought up, we did a threaded talk last week, right? Uh, let's, a connected talk, a connected discourse. And several of you, um, what you said, what you said stayed with you. And not necessarily in a good way. You know, you were, you were worried about how it had come across or you felt you were second guessing what you had said, etc. Um, you, you shared this, several of you shared this spontaneously with me. And at least one person I said, now you know how I feel almost every week, <laughs> maybe every month. It's hard to put yourself out there. I would say it's especially hard on screen. I mean, it was already hard. Zen audiences are hard. They're just hard. Because, I don't know, our training, our demeanor, it's, it's, it's just, you know, we're, we're very kind of inward turning. It's not exactly, our, the talks aren't exactly interactive, as you know. And so you're often faced with a wall of faces. And you have to learn to push through that in yourself. And different people have different ways of doing that. Some people do it with humor. That I used to yell. I don't know if those of you who, who um, ever listened to a talk or watched him give a talk, I don't know if you remember, but he just kept getting louder and louder and louder as the talk went along until he was almost literally screaming by the end of it to keep people awake, to keep people engaged. He was also very good at doing voices and telling stories and, you know, he was very good at it, but, and it was still hard. It's hard to keep a group engaged for as long as we tend to talk. And my talks tend to be a little bit shorter. So know that what you felt is normal. If, if you said something completely out of line and completely, I mean, I would tell you, as your teacher, I would softly and kindly tell you. But often it's just, you know, it's what, how we perceive ourselves. And we're the worst judges. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have closed up after an evening together and I have thought, oh my God, erase that talk right now. I don't, I just archive it, but I often don't put them up when I am not happy with them. And then the next day, two people will tell me, oh my God, you were speaking right to me, that changed my life. And you're like, you, you can't be serious. So, you know, I've learned to, one, take it lightly, two, to offer. I prepare as best I can. Hopefully you do the same. Though the thread of talk, I gave you no preparation. So all your preparation is in fact you, it's your life, and it's the Dharma that you have in you, which is enough preparation. And then you open your mouth and you take a chance. You step out. You are exposed. Every time you share a Dharma glimpse, you're exposed. And I hope that you know, and if you don't, I'm telling you, that what you're doing is an act of service. 
and maybe you can think of it that way, you are offering the best of what you can give, which is you. And how it lands, in one sense, is not your business. In the sense that you can't do anything about it. I mean, of course, you want to continue to, I mean, I certainly continue to work, to prepare, to communicate as well as I can, as clearly as I can, as skillfully as I can. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But my heart, what I, what I want is to offer the best of me. And so think of it, of it that way, because I hope we can do more of these threaded talks. As somebody also said, and I agree, you know, it also is not passive. It's not just me talking and you taking it in, but it's all of us living the Dharma in that moment and really listening to one another, which means we have to really be with one another and connect with one another. I mean, I try to do that every time I speak to you, but that's me. And as a listener, that's harder to do. You have to really stay on it. You know, to hear the words, to feel the what's behind the words, the feeling behind it. And so I do want to do more of these talks and, and do other things that involve all of us. And I hope that you will remember this, that, that we're all entering the fray, as one of the phrases in the koan say, you know, that's what Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin does. She enters the fray, she takes a chance in order to help, in order to save all beings. Every time we share, this is what we do. And so what I mean, you know, by laughing at our mistakes is not, you know, how, ha, 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 how funny, you know, that I was impatient or rageful or unkind. You know, I, don't, I don't mean that. I mean, oh, I'm practicing and I'm not quite able to do things differently. Or what I, what I wanted to say was so clear in my mind and then I opened my mouth and it was kind of like, eh. you know, I thought by now I'd be enlightened. What happened? Okay, we try again. We start over. We forget what we think we know so we can see what's there, hear what's there. So I just said, that is so important. Well, this poem, Merwin's poem, starts with the word, listen. The rule of St. Benedict starts with the word, listen. Listen carefully, my child, and incline the ear of your heart. It's quite beautiful. All of the sutras begin with the line, thus have I heard. And then the implication is there. Listen, this is what the Buddha said, this is what I heard, now you listen. In one of Ursula Le Guin's books, it's called The Telling, the main character is um, 
a kind of seer, a kind of prophet, and they always start speaking with another by saying, I listen. Not I'm listening, not a statement of fact, but a reminder, an instruction, a, a command to themselves that this is important. I listen. This is how we could ready ourselves when someone we love is about to speak. Really, when someone, anyone, is about to say something. I listen. Remember at the monastery, you know, we would start the talks, the Dharma talk with Agatha of, of opening the sutra. The Dharma, incomparably profound and infinitely subtle, is rarely encountered. Even in millions of ages, now we see it, hear it, receive and maintain it. May we completely realize the Tathagata's true meaning. Now we see, we hear, we receive and maintain the truth of our lives. In the smallest of acts, I mean, did, did you know that? You're receiving and maintaining the Dharma every time you brush your teeth, you pull on your clothes, you make your bed. Did you know that you're hearing the 84,000 gathas. It's in one of the koans, but the Dogen also refers to it. You know, the voice of the river and the jackhammer and the siren and in silence. Did you know that you're swimming in Dharma? And do you let it change you? That's really what it comes down to, doesn't it? Do we let it change us? They insulted me, they hit me, they beat me, they robbed me. For those who brood on this, Animosity, which in Pali is called Vera, is instilled. They insulted me, hit me, beat me, robbed me. For those who don't brood on it, animosity is stilled. Animosity is instilled through animosity, regardless. Animosity is stilled through non-animosity. This is an unending truth. Imagine this being said kind of almost as an incantation in Pali or in Sanskrit, in the repetition, in the Buddha saying this, because this is from the Dhammapada, the Buddha's words. Hatred will not still hatred. We know this. But then what do we do with our anger, with our distress? 
What do we do so we don't let it out and we don't bottle it up? The Buddha also says we can use our breath to dissolve anger, to dissolve resentment, to dissolve judgment, like water dissolving salt. And so we would ask ourselves, how do I breathe so that my body is more comfortable? This is paraphrasing the Satipatthana Sutta. How do I breathe so I alleviate the discomfort of my mind? Breathing in, I calm the bodily formation. Breathing out, I calm the mental formation. And you know, careful here, because it sounds so simple, it can't possibly affect real conflict, can it? I mean, the breath, global conflict, how does that work? We're using the body to tame an unruly mind, the only place where conflict happens. The only place. It is never out there. So we breathe slowly, mindfully, in order to move through the discomfort in the body and still the discomfort of the mind. Now the Satipatthana Sutta, there are 10 sections in just the first foundation of mindfulness, which is the body. 10 sections on the body. 10 slightly different practices for working with the breath or with the whole body. This is what the Buddha did for his entire teaching life. I mean, he had other, a few other meditation objects, subjects, but this was the main thing. Mindfulness of breathing. If it was good enough for the Buddha, good enough for us. And if someone says, well, you know, that's not world peace, it's the peace of this world. And where else are we going to start? And once we've calmed the body enough, enough, we can ask, is my anger helping? Right? Sometimes we find a situation so horrible, so unbearable, it's so extraordinary that we feel we have an extraordinary right to react. That is actually Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And then we realize, wait a second, this is the nature of samsara. And maybe we can calm down a little bit and then take a small step toward goodness. Just a small step. In another sutra, the Buddha says, you know, if we're angry, if, if uh, somebody harms us, somebody does something wrong, we can think of ourselves as a person in the desert. You know, we're hot, we're tired, we're like shaking with thirst. And we come across a, a cow print in the sand. 
And there's a little bit of water in it, just a tiny little bit of water. But if we scoop it up, it gets muddy. And then it's undrinkable. And so what do we do? We get down on all fours and we get really close to the ground and we slurp it up. But I mean, that's just so undignified. We wouldn't want somebody to come along and like, take a picture, post it on social media. But if our life depended on it, we would certainly do it. Well, our life depends on finding the goodness in another when that goodness is hard to find. That is what the Buddha is saying. You know, we have to get low and we have to get close, really close. And then if we can, we have to protect that little bit of goodness, like that water. Like that story of that woman that I've told, you know, she's skipping school, she's doing drugs, she's not, you know, not caring what other people say, she's getting into fights, and everyone's always on her case. Why are you like this? What's wrong? Why are you like this? And one day, an elder takes a single look at her, and she calls her over, and she says, very simply, not what are you doing, but where does it hurt? Killing her with kindness. And so, you know, as wars rage on and the news feed feeds on our discontent, you know, we can decide that we're not going to collude with samsara. As the Buddha said, I do not accept your gift. We can decide we won't stoke our anger, but find ways to face it and change it and use it, use it well. We can decide we'll choose humility and reverence and gratitude and contentment. Someone that I work with shared uh, with me the other day this wonderful phrase, enough is a feast. Can we live that? Can we live enough is a feast? Because if we can, if we can, we'll contribute to a vastly different world. And we really need it. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisedoddard.org. And if you'd like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.